All right, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 47, or 42 rather, down to verse 17. The topic we'll find there this morning, you are compared to a bruised reed that God's servant came to heal. The title of our message, Bruise Control. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for your son. Thank you for salvation, Lord, that belongs to you but is given to us freely when we believe in him. I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that knows you, we are in you, that we would uh, bask in your love and grace, that, uh, Lord, if we are bruised or uh, smoldering today, Lord, as it says in the text, that you would be the one who encourages and strengthens us, Lord, fans us back into flame, provides us with the fuel of the Holy Spirit, Lord, in order to be pleasing to your name. As always, Lord, we believe that there are uh, several folks here who are not believers in you. Only your spirit, Lord, can open their heart and free their will so that they can make a decision to follow Christ, to confess their sins, to repent of those sins, Lord, and to follow Christ. We pray that you would do that through your mighty word and work of the spirit. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Does the name Todd Bentley ring a bell to anyone? Todd Bentley? It would have, if you had ever been to one of his revival meetings, had you gone forward, he would have rang your bell. Listen to Burley Todd Bentley describe a typical night of his ministry. I said, God, I prayed for like a hundred crippled people, not one. He said, that's because I want you to grab that lady's crippled legs and bang them up and down on the platform like a baseball bat. I walked up and I grabbed her legs and I started going, bam! I started banging them up and down on the platform. She got healed. Another time, I'm, I'm thinking, God, why isn't the power of God moving? He said, because you haven't kicked that woman in the face. <laughs> and there was this older lady worshiping right in front of the platform. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. The gift of faith came upon me. He said, kick her in the face with your biker boot. I inched closer and I went like, bam! And just as my boot made contact with her nose, she fell under the power of God. <laughs> Bentley was a key figure of what was called the Lakeland Revival in 2008. The meetings attracted 10,000 attendees a night for a total of 400,000 and another 1.2 million watching on the internet. Bentley has since been disgraced by scandal. I have one word that comes to my mind reading that, and it's the word Christ-like. Christians ought to be Christ-like in all we do, especially ministry. Nothing about those meetings was remotely Christ-like. What was Christ-like? One of the most well-known descriptions is in our text. Jesus, it says, will not cry out. He won't raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. We wouldn't be wrong to use the word gentle to describe Jesus. And uh, we could even put a footnote in your Bible saying, and an old woman he will not kick in the face. <laughs> Let's discover how much we like Christ-likeness. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God the Father gives you a profile of church age Christ-likeness. And number two, God the Father gives you a profile of kingdom age, Christ-likeness. Let's take a look at us in the 
church age in verses 1 through 12. Now, Todd Bentley, that's a worst-case scenario. The typical revival service features much tamer but no less ostentatious antics. You can expect folks to be slain in the spirit, lots of sweating and screaming and shouting. We would say that's not all that Christ-like. Now, conservative believers, often cessationists when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they fall short of Christ's likeness as well, or they can't. They give God accolades, of course, but they let you know that it's their time in the Word, their prayer life, it's their giving, it's their obedience, their self-effort that really unlocks the power of God. Because they spend so much time with God and are so focused on God, He empowers them. They're the ones whom A.W. Tozer would describe as not being able to recognize if the Holy Spirit withdrew from their gatherings because they're so much into their self. And again, not Christ-like. And so we don't want to get to either of those extremes. Uh, so let's take a look at Jesus here in chapter 42. Verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This is the first of uh, four of what scholars call servant songs. The next one's in chapter 50, then 52, then uh, 53. If you were to ask to jump, uh, excuse me, to sum up Jesus' earthly ministry in one word, I think servant would suffice. His entire mission is encapsulated in Philippians 2, 7, and 8, where we read, He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Always and forever fully God, Jesus added humanity to his deity via the virgin birth. He said of his being in the world, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so Jesus is the quintessential servant. Uh, and the one that we should imitate, and the one from whom we receive empowering. The Father upholds his servant. The word means to strengthen or to sustain. Fully God and fully man, Jesus set aside the independent use of his deity while he was on the earth and was strengthened and sustained by his Father. How much more can we trust the Father to strengthen and sustain us since we are weak and prone to wander? I mean, the Bible says that Jesus only did what his father told him to do, and God over, uh, you know, overwatched him and gave him the power to do things. But Jesus was perfect and, and you know, desiring to walk with God. How much more do we need God to strengthen and sustain us? Uh, we are, in fact, needing preferential treatment. And, you know, a lot of times you say, oh, you think in your heart, oh, you know, God, you know, I've... I've uh, you know, disobeyed God so much, he's turned his back on me. No, if anything, you're a special needs child. And what, what do we do with special needs child? Do we say, oh, you know, here's the classroom for normal kids, and why don't you go out and play in the street for a while? No. They're, they have special classes and special uh, education, right? The best that money can buy. And so, you know, hey, I don't mind. I'll, I'm a special needs child of God. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't have saved me if I were God, you know, and stuff, but he did. And so I think God works overtime in my life and in most of our lives as we attend to Calvary Chapel, uh, you know. Anyway, I like, to I like to insult us all at the same time, but 
God the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus when he was water baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. Jesus applied these verses to himself when he taught in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. So there can be no doubt that the servant being described by Isaiah is Jesus. And that's an important point because sometimes a Jew will come along, a non-believing Jew, and read this and say, oh, he's describing the nation of Israel as a single person. But we would rather say, no, it seems like he's describing a single person who comes to the nation as their savior. He will bring out justice to the Gentiles. Israel may be the apple of God's eye, but the salvation of Gentiles was always part of the plan. Isaiah first mentioned justice back in chapter 1. He said, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Justice is righteousness in action, and it is the responsibility of nations to uphold it. We are to do things like rebuke oppressors, defend the fatherless, plead for widows. We yearn for these things in our heart. We're heartbroken as we see greater and greater lawlessness, lawmakers passing evil legislation, people calling good evil and evil good. There will be real justice when the just one comes to rule. No gray areas, no backroom politicking, just right and wrong, just yay and nay from Jesus. I skipped over the phrase, my elect one, The doctrine of election gets our blood boiling towards one another. Calvinists and Arminians are the theological version of the Hatfields and the McCoys. They fight one another like crazy over these doctrines. Well, here in Isaiah, let's just ask ourselves this. Did Jesus need to be saved? Well, no, of course not. And so elect doesn't mean elect to salvation, right? Not in this case anyway. So what does it mean? It means that he was elected to his service, not to salvation. He had a particular task that was set ahead of him. He was chosen for it, elect for it, set aside for it. And that task was to die on the cross and rise from the dead. And Jesus in his entire life, but especially his ministry, was, as we would say, laser focused on that task. That was what he was elect to do. Father is delighted with Jesus. He was his servant, chosen for his particular service, depending wholly upon the Father to sustain him. God delights in you, and each of us has a particular path of serving God that he wants to reveal to us. Again, unbelievable that I could bring God any delight, but he says that I do, and you do as well if you're a Christian. Now, we're not delightful, but if we are in Christ, he will complete the work he has begun in us, presenting us blameless and unblemished to the Father. And so even now in our present state, God can see the finished perfect product, right? Michelangelo is quoted as saying, every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. I see the angel in the marble and carve until I set him free. And so God sees the the human in you, the man in you, the woman in you that you ought to be, that you were meant to be, and that you will be in eternity. And that's why he can delight in you. That's why he can see you as if you had never sinned, even though you continue to sin. Because he sees, not, and it's more than just potential, it's an, it's an actuality. He doesn't see your potential if you try really hard or if he decides to work overtime on you. He sees what's actually going to happen to you. And I can't wait to be there. Verse 2 
He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Jesus is never intimidating. He is not manipulating. He is not controlling. He is not abusive. Where those things exist, there is not Jesus. Now, Christians do these things. I'm not saying they're not Christians. But it's not the Jesus style of ministry. And so when you're feeling pressured and manipulated and those kinds of things from an individual Christian or a a church, it's not right. It's not Christ-like. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. We have reeds growing out of our urban pond in the backyard. Once they are bent, there's no restoring it to its original condition. I don't go out there with a little splint, you know, and, and try and do that you know, micro-gardening. How do you think our reed is doing, honey? I don't know. He looks pretty broken to me. I think he's just bruised. We can save it. Jesus, though, sees us as bruised reeds that he can save. Albert Barnes writes, He will not make those already broken down with a sense of sin and with uh, calamity more wretched. He will not deepen their afflictions or augment their trials or multiply their sorrows. The sense is that he will have an affectionate regard for the brokenhearted, the humble, the penitent, and the afflicted. Yeah, you're going to be overwhelmed with a sense of your sin as a non-believer coming to Christ and later again as a believer coming to Christ uh, as you you become aware of different things. But it's always in the context of God drawing you to himself, not setting you away. You know, he wants you to come. He wants you to see this condition so that you can cry out for a savior. And so that's the, that's the deal. I have trouble with the sentence uh, that I can't remember right now. No, uh, <laughs> It's the Jonathan Edwards saying, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I have so much trouble with that. One of the great sermons, by the way, of all time, as far as history is concerned, I've never gotten through all of it. That's because I'm not intellectually accurate. But, uh, you know, but it, I just don't. Do you like that title? Do you get that from reading the Bible? Sinners in the hands of an angry God dangling over hell. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go. Ah, oh, sorry. I flinched. You know, uh, now, I, I understand you can preach too much grace maybe. But Jesus says, uh, you know, I, I, I want to bring you to myself. I don't want to drop you in hell. I want to save you from hell. And, and so we preach the gospel, and God opens your heart by the Holy Spirit, and you receive Christ, and he saves you from your sin. The smoking flax is the almost spent wick of a lamp. He will not extinguish or quench it. He will supply it with the oil of grace to see it rekindled. He will bring forth justice for truth. That can be interpreted as he will make sure that justice is done. When the Lord rules, as I said, politics will have no place in determining justice. No gray areas. Uh, Christians won't be arguing over certain behaviors that we ought or ought not to do. Everything will just be straight. Uh, We will know uh, intuitively how to act and react in our new glorified bodies as we help the Lord rule. Verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. That means it'll take some time for it to get around the earth. Now, why does it take time for justice to spread on, uh, around the earth when the Lord comes back to establish the kingdom? Well, the kingdom of God on earth that follows the great tribulation is initially populated by mortal believing survivors of the great tribulation. They are the ones whom Jesus says, 
well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, come into the kingdom of God. Those believers start reproducing to repopulate the kingdom of heaven on earth, and their children are born sinners. They are not saved. They're just like you and I before we get saved. They're not supernatural. They're natural. And uh, the end of that will be a great rebellion against Jesus at the end of that thousand years. But along the way, there will be problems. It sounds, it blows your mind to think there's still going to be problems in the millennial kingdom. Yeah, of course, because there are sinners in the millennial kingdom. It's not going to be perfect. But the Lord and his helpers, you and I included, will deal with things quickly and righteously. And it could be that, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we'll read in a little while are judgments for that. And so bear that in mind. It's not perfect. However, it will be futile to resist the rule of Jesus. And verse 5 says, Thus God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth, which came from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to uh, who walk on it. I make a great song. We should write a song out of verse 25. Already done it? Yes. God points us to special creation a lot in order to underscore his greatness and his glory. But here's what I notice here. What God is saying is, look, I created the heavens and stretched them out. Uh, I've got everything functioning. Uh, And then I spread out the earth and that which comes from it. So we've got the entire creation, all the universe. And then I gave breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I brought life and, spirit and the spirit to human beings. And so this really is the backdrop. It's a backdrop. It's a stage. It's a magnificent stage. But it's only a stage, you know, for mankind. And that's how much God wants to have fellowship with you. doesn't need to have fellowship with you because he's God. has always had perfect fellowship within the triunity of God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But he wants to have fellowship with you. And he says, I'm going to create a magnificent universe and put you in it and give you free will because I made you in my image. And uh, boy, Adam and Eve, I, I don't know if they're going to take uh, calls in, the, you know, in, in eternity. You just you get a, a phone or you know, message all the time. Hi, this is Adam. We're never going to be around for you to talk to. Because you know, they blew it, right? We would have blown it sooner or worse, I'm sure. But... Um, you know, the Lord said, I, 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 want, I want to have fellowship with man. And as soon as he sinned, he said, okay, I've got a way of overcoming this. I can come as a man and die in your place. And that's the plan. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. These verses are applied to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum points out, the servant was not merely to make a covenant with the Jews. He was the covenant maker and the essence of the covenant itself. In other words, it's all uh, presented in, bundled in, it's all Jesus. In a relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior, the covenants would all be fulfilled. It says here he's going to open blind eyes, bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That's the human condition before you know Jesus Christ. You're blind in absolute darkness in a dungeon locked up with no awareness of that. Uh, It's like all the movies you've seen where 
And, uh, you know, I, I remember The Matrix well enough to, to use that, but it's like all the movies where people are living in some kind of a world in their mind that doesn't really exist and stuff. Only you're not. You're, you're actually living in the darkness of a dungeon of your sin, and the devil wants to keep you there. And that's why Jesus says, I've come as the light of the world, a light into darkness to shine my light on this and, and to draw people to himself. To open blind eyes, bring out the prisoners from the prison house, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. There are a few notorious prisons, Luragancho, Shawshank, Rurapente. Without Jesus, you are like a blind man, as I said, sitting in the dark in that locked cell. The father said he would hold Jesus' hand. If we are to be like Jesus, we must allow him to hold our hand. We talked about this at length last week, so I don't want to belabor it. But it's like a parent holding the hand of a toddler. It's not just intimate. It has to do with protection and uh, direction, right? You can direct your toddler in a certain way by uh, holding its hand, his or her hand. And the same thing about danger. If you need to be, you pick them up, right? How many times do you have to pick up your kid that was trying to run out into the middle of traffic or into a pool or something like that? And so that's, the Lord says, I did that for Jesus. And so it just talks about his humanity and his ability to really relate to us as our Savior. I am the Lord, that's my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Multitude of lowercase g gods in the world, whether idols or images or ideas, God alone is the Almighty God. Behold, the former things have come to pass, new things I declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of prophecy. He alone can predict with 100% accuracy the future. Uh, no other religious leader of no other religious cult or religion can predict the future with any accuracy. And so right away, the debate is over, right? It's like, let, let's have a debate between, uh, you know, followers of Buddha and followers of Jesus as to, you know, who is the more powerful? Uh, let me just say this. You know, I could say that he created the universe, but let's move on from there and just say he's predicted uh, everything 100% in the Old Testament and he will in the New. How are you doing, Buddha? I don't think Buddha talks. He just sits there with his legs crossed, eating a lot, I guess, because he's pretty fat. But anyway. <laughs> Isaiah 42.10, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. The word new song appear often in the Bible. Certainly has application to keeping our worship fresh by literally singing new songs and keeping pace with what the Holy Spirit is saying to us as a congregation. What, what kind of music has he given us? And I've told you before, the kind of music that a particular church has has a lot to do with the people that are sent to that church the worship leaders and, and uh, you know, the worship team members and all. Uh, I mean, you know, you think, oh, I'd love to have a violin on, at worship. Wouldn't that be great? What's wrong with you guys? You know what's wrong with us? No one plays the violin that I know of. And if, if you want to suggest somebody, we'll hound them. I miss the flute, right? I love the flute. Maybe it's because, well, never mind that. But anyway, um, so, you know, but that's the deal. But we, we're, I think we have the greatest worship ever and have the whole time, you know, I've been here in this city. But... Uh, you know, we, we, we grow and we, ex we, we uh, expand and we stay fresh. But it's also uh, that we would walk in such a manner that we experience the grace of God and the mercy of God in new ways that are song worthy. 
We're not just trying, you know, people don't just try and write songs uh, for the Lord. They, they, they hear from the Lord. God gives them the songs. And a lot of times it's based on something noteworthy or praiseworthy or some understanding that they've come to of who God is. Write your own song. You can do it. You don't have to perform it for anybody and you don't have to write it as music. Just find an area of scripture and start doing some melodies with it. Start doing some riffs and see what happens. Do it in the shower. You sing in the shower already. It's better than humming in a God of Vita, you know. I mean, just so... When, we, when the kids were little, we found a, a section of, uh, I think it was Psalms, it might have been Proverbs, but, and we made a little song of it, and we'd sing to it uh, at night when they would go to bed, and it was fun, so do that. Verse 11, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, and the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Salah sing, let them shout from the top of the mountains, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. This is a lyrical way of saying that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, the Lord's not always gentle. He's coming back to rule with a rod of iron to judge the wicked and cast them alive into the lake of fire. That doesn't seem gentle. Well, you're correct. We're going to see that in in just a second in the next set of verses. But that's in our future after the church is resurrected and raptured. It isn't now. It is after now, after the church age. In the present age, we're to be more like the Lord in his first coming. We're to emulate the Lord, imitate the Lord in his first coming as a servant. Not to be served, but to serve. To lay down his life for others. To live a resurrection life in the power of the Holy Spirit. All of those kinds of things. Yeah, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus after he comes. Not now. Now we are Jesus in his first coming. In his, and that's what makes us Christ-like. Make me a servant is our theme. We get a profile of kingdom age Christ-likeness in the remaining verses. The description of Jesus in these verses is mighty man, man of war, laying waste mountains and hills, drying up vegetation, making rivers, coastlands, drying up pools. This is an abrupt change. This is a future dispensation where Jesus uh, has a lot of different ministries than he has now. So verse 13, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man, He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out. Yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. I can't read this without thinking about Jesus and his return to earth to be crowned king of kings in Revelation 19. He joins the battle of Armageddon already in progress and easily dispatches his enemies, it says, by the sharp sword coming from his mouth. Verse 14, I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. The Lord doesn't lose his temper and go off on unbelievers. That's not what he's saying. He's long-suffering, not willing that any of Adam's descendants should perish. He says, I've been long-suffering, but my long-suffering is now at an end. And I think anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time, in the back of your mind is thinking, Lord, how much longer before? You know, before you come, because the world, how much worse can the world get? Just when you think you've seen it all or heard it all, some new scandal or some new horrible thing happens on planet Earth, and you think, Lord. And so the Lord says, no, when I decide to come, I'm coming, and it will end. And I'll lay waste the mountains and the hills, dry up vegetation. I'll make the rivers, coastlands dry up, the pools. 
Now, we talk about the millennial kingdom being this glorious time of streams in the desert, but here we see that there's going to be some other things going on with unbelievers. Remember, there will be sinners on the earth needing salvation. We know from Ezekiel's vision of the millennium that priests are making sin offerings during that time, so there must be sinners. And Zechariah prophesies that some of the nations will sin by choosing not to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. Can you imagine in the millennial kingdom, no disease, no sickness, Jesus Christ reigning and ruling in righteousness, glorified believers, you get a special invitation as a Gentile nation to come to the Feast of Tabernacles, and you say, eh, decline, We're, I'm busy now. And so the Lord, you know, that's the kind of thing he's not going to take lightly. He says, okay, maybe I'll just flatten some of your mountains and destroy your crops um, to kind of encourage you to come and, and see what's going on. Verse 16, I'll bring a, uh, the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness uh, light before them and crooked places uh, straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. Verse 17, they shall be turned back, they shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are gods. And so it looks like believers in verse 16 and unbelievers in verse 17, believers will be converted and obviously guided into the Lord's truth in the future kingdom. Idolaters, not so fast, they will be ashamed and turned back. We're reminded of the judgment Jesus conducts at his return. I've mentioned it once already, but he's going to separate the survivors of the tribulation into national groups of believers and unbelievers. The believers are the sheep who enter into the kingdom. The unbelievers are the goats who go to await their final judgment. In verse 2, if you just gaze at that real quick, we were told that Jesus would not raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. But then in verse 13 and 14, we read, he shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He'll prevail against his enemies, cry like a woman in labor, pant and gasp at once. Your cat has a range of over 100 vocalizations. I heard 75 of them this morning, an hour earlier than normal. My cat is on its own timetable that has nothing to do with daylight savings time, apparently. She's so cute, though. I love her so much. The Lord has a limitless range of vocalizations. If you think this is a weird topic or I shouldn't be talking about it, remember the Apostle Paul when he said that God, the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for us with what? Groanings that cannot be uttered. It isn't that he interprets our groanings. He groans. We're praying and fervent in our prayer, and he can only communicate it in groanings. Isaiah says some of what comes out of Jesus' mouth will be crying and shouting out. If you've uh, done martial arts, maybe you still do martial arts, you're familiar with the kia or the kia. It's that noise, that, that shout, right? And it's, it's for purposes of breathing. You're, it helps you to breathe, inhale, exhale at the right time. But it's really to frighten your enemy. And so you face off. I can't do it very loud. You know, I mean, it doesn't fool anybody. But uh, if you could, man, sad story, I... I had the privilege of delivering a death notification to a young uh, woman years and years ago. Her baby had a SIDS death, and uh, they, anyway, we were at the hospital, and um, it was a little difficult uh, because she was you know, a little bit unhinged, which I understood. She didn't know her baby had died yet, and so 
didn't handle it exactly the way I wanted to. And when I told her her baby had died or was dead, um, she let out a banshee shriek that I've never heard before. It must have been, you, uh, you, if you were in Lemoore, you would have heard it. Uh, I mean, it was awful. And, and she fell to the ground and just shrieked and screamed. Everybody from the hospital came over. Uh, it so unnerved me, I didn't know my name. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing there. And then when I got control, I thought, is that baby really dead or did I tell her something wrong? I mean, it completely threw me. That's why when Jesus says, I'm going to scream like a woman in childbirth, it may not sound like much to you, but if, it's going to freak everybody out and startle them. It'd be like you coming up to somebody like some of you do and with those, one of those air horns, right? Or here at church, we're having worship, you know, and stuff, everything's great, and then something happens at the soundboard, and everybody grabs their ears. And so Jesus is into this kind of battle cry stuff. He's the Lion of Judah. An adult male lion's roar can be heard five miles away. It's so loud that it can reach 114 decibels, 25 times louder than a gasoline-powered lawnmower. And it's not just the volume. The experience of hearing a lion roaring is terrifying. I cannot imagine an unconverted sinner seeing the Lord as a mighty man of war crying out and shouting aloud. That it's an, and that's why I want to talk about it a little bit because it's an element we don't really think about at the coming of the Lord. But man, he, you know, what comes out of his mouth? The word of God, you know, he defeats them by the word of God. True, absolutely. But he's also shouting and crying and screaming uh, and, and uh, it's deafening and dis destroying. Do you know there are many legendary battle cries? The rebel yell was a real thing. Who knew that the rebel yell was a real thing, Right? Uh, not just a Billy Idol song. <laughs> the Confederate forces during the Civil War, a Union officer described the banshee yell. He said it was the ugliest sound any mortal ever heard. The ancient Roman legions marched in silence to maintain order, but they had many battle cries. One of them resembled the sound of a stampeding elephant. Banzai, Geronimo, huzzah! Famous one-world battle cries, one-word, excuse me, battle cries. On the seventh day of the march around Jericho, the Jews were to what? Blow the trumpets and shout, and the walls would fall down. Gideon instructed his reduced special forces, blow the trumpets on every side and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And there are more battle cries in the Old Testament. And so just tuck that away as super interesting and super fun to just think of the Lord and his battle cries and the ability that he has with just the, the vocalizations in order to control and uh, win wars. We have a battle cry. I, I was thinking, well, we should have a battle cry. I said, well, Gene, you're so stupid. We already have one. You know what it is? Uh, yeah. Are you ready for the rapture? Because... Ready or not, Jesus is coming. So let's try it again. <laughs> Get ready and stay ready and keep looking up because... Ready or not, Jesus is coming. You did so much better than first service. <laughs> of course, I didn't give them a chance to practice, but anyway. The church age ends with a shout and a trumpet blast and the voice of the archangel. Uh, that shout, commentators say, well, it's the shout of the archangel that's mentioned, but... You know, from what we know about Jesus, maybe it's the shout of Jesus, right? 
We don't like to think about him shouting or all that kind of, but it's, it's a shout in this context of him being all powerful and all loving and wonderful and, and just, it's a sound that's going to fill the earth, right? It's, there's no such thing, sometimes your friends who are, don't believe in the rapture say, oh, you guys believe in the secret rapture, you know, something invented in the 1800s. There's no secret about the rapture. The earth is going to ring with the shout of Jesus Christ. I don't know if it's going to be definite. I don't know if people are going to fall to the ground or look up in awe. I mean, we're not told, but unbelievers are going to hear that as far as I can tell. Now, until all that happens, stay on mission. What's your mission? Go, and as you're going, preach the gospel everywhere and make disciples of all men. Bring them into this beautiful thing called the church where God is building us together, a holy temple unto the Lord. You and I need to be first coming Christ-like. Not second coming Christ-like, that will happen. We need to be first coming Christ-like the way Jesus was, walking in the power of the Spirit, seeking uh, those who need salvation.